Before we get into today's episode, I want to thank a couple sponsors that we were able to secure for this season, uh, season five of the Scuttlebutt. It's exciting to be able to get sponsors for this. Uh, we're really thankful for them. Uh, the first one, you might have heard them already, is D&D Metal Recycling and Auto Salvage. The Scuttlebutt's been pairing with D&D for quite some time. Uh, D&D began as a small hauling and used auto parts operation in the Pittsburgh area in the late 1970s and has grown into a full service metal recycling company with two locations, Lawrenceville and Tarentum. These are state-of-the-art scrapyards with deep roots in the community and a strong commitment to the service of their customers. D&D accepts all types of metal, both ferrous and non-ferrous, that may be generated by industrial manufacturing, construction and demolition, small commercial entities, as well as individual customers. They have a wide variety of material handling equipment and are capable of managing any job in a timely and efficient manner. You can contact them for quotes and availability at D&D, &D, that's D and D, autosalvage.com. Thank you, D&D, &D, for supporting this podcast. Uh, been wonderful collaborating with you, and uh, we're looking forward to, to being with you uh, all through season five here. We'd also like to thank a new sponsor for the Scuttlebutt, Tobacco-Free Adagio Health. Tobacco-Free Adagio Health is dedicated to preventing and reducing tobacco use and increasing education about tobacco hazards and secondhand smoke. Of course, the best way to be tobacco-free is to never start. And we'll be sharing more about the many programs offered by Tobacco-Free Adagio Health in the future. You can check out more of their work at tobaccofree.adagiohealth. That's A-D-A-G-I-O health.org. Tobaccofree.adagiohealth.org. Org. Um, really excited to have sponsors on board uh, for the Scuttlebutt, and uh, I hope you enjoy this upcoming episode. I had the privilege of being able to uh, pronounce forgiveness over my father, a three-war combat pilot on his deathbed, and I never saw the peace as he passed away uh, his entire life. I never saw that until that moment. Hello and welcome to The Scuttlebutt. My name is Sean Hall, Director of Programming with the Veterans Breakfast Club, whose mission is to create communities of listening around veterans and their stories to connect, educate, heal, and inspire. If this is the first time that you've heard or listened to The Scuttlebutt or even watched The Scuttlebutt, uh, please be sure to like or share, or subscribe, ring that bell on YouTube, or leave us a comment. You can drop me a line too at Sean, S-H-A-U-N, at veteransbreakfastclub.org. Always interested to hear uh, from our audience. The Scuttlebutt is really built uh, to try to understand military culture from a civilian perspective. And that's my perspective. I am a civilian. I'm not a veteran. Um, in fact, none of us are here at the Veterans Breakfast Club. We have a, a passion for veteran stories. Uh, and there is no shortage of military topics to talk about, uh, which is why we are now in season five of this podcast. And I think this episode should be very interesting to those who are, are uh called to serve a higher faith. Um, we're gonna have on three Air Force veterans who are also ordained ministers. Uh, they all served as um, chaplains, um, two of them after uh, they left the Air Force and one of them during his service. And so it was very interesting to me to, to understand these two worlds, faith, and and war um how do they coexist why is why has faith been so intertwined with war over the centuries um what are their responsibilities how do they deal with all the other religions on base do they carry a weapon um what about the the, the combat veterans the guys who are going out and actually have to potentially take a life how are they reconciling that with their faith um a very interesting conversation i think that you'll be uh intrigued by um joining us will be ben wright uh he is not only uh, a former board member of the VBC, but a, a reverend in his own right, uh, Mike Wunderschmidt and Eric Fenton. Um, so if you have any questions, thoughts, comments about this episode, please feel free to, to leave a comment or drop me a line. We're always interested to hear, hear from you. And we're always interested to hear from our from our fans, from our listeners. Uh, in fact, uh, we did receive a couple emails from William Silver about our most recent episode about the 2030 Talent Management Plan within the Marine Corps. I'm going to read you his email. Um, and thank you, William, for, for reaching out and for, uh, for dropping us this line. And I'm just going to go ahead and read it here. There has long been the tradition that separates the U.S. Marines from other branches. And that is in order to be a Marine, you must earn the Eagle Globe and anchor. The education level of today's Marine is better than ever. The U.S. Marine Corps is the 911 force and must remain that way as one of the first line of defenses for this country. The Marines are special because of who they are and what they stand for. They are a special force. Other than the Marine Corps' band that serves a separate purpose, it would be wrong to place the Eagle Globe and anchor on the collar of someone who has never earned that right. It would water down the Corps. 
every Marine is a rifleman first and moving into a plan as suggested by the Commandant for a more specialized Marine should always require the ba same basic standard. Like I stated, it is a poor analogy to use the Marine Corps band as an example since they are not in the field of combat. To finish my statement, today's Marine is very intelligent and it is that intelligence that should be recruited for an expanded mission moving forward. And again, if you want to be a Marine regardless of your MOS, then earn it as all Marines have doing the hard work the right way not the cheap way. Thank you again, William, for sending this. And also, uh, you just had one follow-up that you say, uh, please note that I understand that the Marines need to put into effect these new areas needed to protect this country. I believe there can be special incentives in recruiting for these specialized core responsibilities. However, one standard needs to remain, as I stated, and that is all Marines must have the same high standard of basic training to earn the right to wear the Eagle Globe and anchor. Uh, again, William, thank you for sending in that comment. Uh, and to our audience, to our listeners, to our watchers, uh, feel free to drop us a line. We love reading uh, our the responses to our episodes uh, here on the podcast. And without further ado, here is my conversation with Eric, Michael, and Ben. Thank you, gentlemen, so much for joining me uh, here on the Scuttlebutt. I'm really interested to dive into all of your stories, and I thought we might spend some time just allowing you to introduce yourselves and talk a bit about your service and, and how you were ordained. Um, Eric Fenton, uh, I'd love to start with you if you'd like to go ahead. I'm happy to. I was ordained in 1981 after I graduated from seminary. I was a chaplain for in the Air Force for 20 years uh, in active duty. Uh, I served a number of different places, including Malmstrom Air Force Base in Montana, um, McClellan Air Force Base in uh, California, uh, Osan Air Base in Korea, and Wright-Patterson Air Force Base in Ohio and Luke Air Force Base in Arizona. And then my final uh, duty assignment was at Lackland Air Force Base in Texas. The picture behind me is from the F-16 engine shop at Luke Air Force Base. And I'm out doing my chaplain thing among the, the people at, at uh, the uh, uh, logistics group. And you said you were ordained in 81? Yes. I'm not going to date myself, but that is the year that I was born. So, oh well, yeah. Well, I've been <laughs> retired for 20 years now, so <laughs> I'm not sure how much my experience is relevant. But I think there are a lot of things that they're still doing that I did way back then. Well, we're very interested in diving into more of uh, your story. Definitely, um, you were uh, the the only guest here that was ordained and then also served during that time as a chaplain. Um, and uh, we'll get into sort of the particulars of that in, in just a little bit. I want to move over to to Mike. Uh, Mike, uh, you're also an Air Force veteran. If you're yes. welcome to the scuttlebutt, and if you could introduce yourself. My name is Reverend Mike Worschmidt. I'm an Anglican uh, priest uh, in the Anglican Church in North America. Uh, I've been ordained as an Anglican priest since uh, December of 98. Uh, prior to that, I was a, uh, a minister in the Vineyard Christian Fellowship Movement. I was uh, a licensed pastor since 1984. So I've been in ministry for quite a few years. My, uh, my father was a three-war combat pilot. Uh, he flew C-130s in Vietnam, ended up uh, dying from Agent Orange from uh, the rotors of the C-130 that would suck in the, the Agent Orange chemicals. Um, I buried him in Arlington National Cemetery back in 96. Um, my first Air Force commander, Colonel Ben Pollard, Colonel Pollard was a uh, F-105 uh, Thunder Chief pilot in Vietnam, shot down as a POW. And it was uh, Colonel Pollard's, uh, after six years as a POW, when I served under him as my first squadron commander, it was uh, Colonel Pollard that gave me the inspiration really to do the work that I do among homeless veterans. And I could share that at another time, uh, a little bit later in this recording. Certainly. Thank you so much, Mike, for being here. And uh, for those of you who have been uh, watching the Scuttlebutt for some time, you may recognize Ben Wright. Uh, he's uh, also a former board member of the Veterans Breakfast Club and Reverend in his own right. Um, ben, thank you again for joining the Scuttlebutt. And, uh, you know, for our new members uh, or our new audience members, I should say, can you introduce yourself, please? Sure. Uh, I'm uh, Ben Wright. I served active duty Air Force for 22 years from 69 uh, to 91. Uh, I went in during Vietnam and elected uh, to go to pilot training. So I served tours as an instructor in our training command and uh, 
flew uh, C-130s um, operationally as well, and a number of staff jobs. Um, I was not. I was then uh, went to seminary and uh, was ordained uh, in 1994. So I've now been ordained for 27 years. Uh, my interest in uh, promoting us doing this is because I enjoyed working with chaplains because the spiritual aspect of where people are is very important to you in a supervisor or command uh, responsibilities uh, in in the military. And uh, so Eric will be able to share a lot more with you about those things and uh, doing that. That's great. Thank you, Ben. And, I, you know, I want to sort of start off this episode with, uh, you know, as we were sort of setting up to do this and we were you know, reaching out to Eric and Mike, you mentioned talking about the epiphany. Uh, that's sort of what was in the email. And that's something that has sort of struck me as like, I wasn't quite sure what you meant by that. And I thought we might define that to start. Sure, I'll, I'll start. Uh, today is January the 6th. Uh, yesterday was the 12th day of Christmas. Uh, so January the 6th is a traditional day to celebrate uh, Christ, uh, the Christ child being uh, his manifestation to the world. And that's marked uh, as the date that's chosen uh, to celebrate the Magi who came from the East uh, to worship and offer their gifts uh, to the Christ child. Um, the other things that uh, are considered part of the Epiphany season are the baptism of Jesus, which we will celebrate this coming Sunday. And then the following Sunday, we'll celebrate uh, the first sign or Jesus uh, turning water into wine at a, a wedding in Cana in Galilee. And so the season runs until Ash Wednesday and the beginning of Lent begins today. Sean, I have to say that the uh, uh, one of the things that us liturgical types had to struggle with in the military was that we were extreme minority. Uh, I was usually the <clears throat> only uh, baby baptizing liturgical on the staff of a bunch of Baptists. And so talking about the feast of the epiphany was something that they didn't do and they didn't understand so much of my time was spent explaining who we are and how we relate to the rest of them not very few of them had had any church history courses in their uh, theological training so they didn't even know their own background so i found myself explaining how they related to each other from the different churches that they represented see chaplains are um endorsed for active duty by their own churches and uh they're they're required to remain faithful to their churches while they're on active duty so they they can't be uh forced to do something be contrary to their theological or religious traditions so for instance as the only baby baptizer on staff if the baptist couldn't talk them out of it then they would come to me and i, I would baptize the babies and that's how it worked and I mean, and working where you did on so many different, uh, you know, Air Force bases, how many different religions would you deal with on a, on a given base? I guess that's kind of like where to start is like you come in as a chaplain and you're working uh, a part of this division and you have to be responsible for a lot of different people, but there's a lot of different backgrounds, a lot of different, you know, non-denominations there, maybe more specific ones. How do you uh, engage in that much? Well, the... Uh... The call of the chaplain is to ensure that the uh, right to exercise their religious beliefs is not infringed. And so the First Amendment was very important to what we did and how we uh, exercised our ministry. And so if there was something that uh, had a religious, uh, a religious requirement that I couldn't uh, address or fulfill, then it was my job to then refer them to somebody or find a way to facilitate the free exercise of religion and that's that's what chaplains do i'm i'm a i'm a christian i'm an episcopalian uh and and as such i have my own tradition and beliefs but i could not uh, they could not force me to do something that would be contrary to those beliefs the other thing is that you're you're working for three different people mm -hmm. uh you're working for the commander on the base and you're working for uh the chief of chaplains and the chaplain service you're also working for your denomination, and any one of those can pull uh, can pull you off active duty. If the denomination pulls your endorsement, you, you can't be on active duty anymore. And so, it's it's kind of a challenge to maintain uh, your 
your uh, integrity in the midst of all that. And sometimes commanders don't understand that. And, and uh, uh, you can get crossways with the commander when you're just trying to do your job. Can you, can you describe like an, an example of that? I find that very interesting. Getting crossways with the commander? Mm-hmm. <laughs> well, okay. Uh, I ran into that. Uh, I, have I had a feeling. <laughs> yeah. Uh, well, um, sometimes commanders are very supportive of chaplains and their work with the, the people that are under their command. And uh, they like to see chaplains out and about and doing things. And, and uh, when I first arrived at uh, Luke Air Force Base, Arizona, the commander we had one of the chaplains out on the flight line. I even had an office on the flight line and uh, wanted us among the people that he commanded. And so we, were, we would do Bible studies and pizza outreaches in the dormitories. Uh, uh, I would uh, I would be, I was flying in F-16s for crying out loud. Uh, they, uh, one of the squadrons had me uh, as their chaplain, flying chaplain. And so two of us chaplains would fly in the back seat of F-16 trainers. And the, the commander encouraged that because he saw that it helped build a relationship of integrity with the pilots and the crews that maintain those planes. And so uh, we did that and I thoroughly enjoyed it. But then we got a commander in who didn't have a whole lot of respect for chaplains. And he thought we should stay in the chapel and not get out among the troops and on the flight line. And it was completely a, a, a big switch from one system to another. Mm-hmm. And yes, I like working in the chapel, and I have a lot of uh, great experience working in the chapel program, which is very much like a, a civilian church. But the uh, the visitation on the flight line and, and being out and about and among the troops was not something that was appreciated. Uh, he did a, uh, a first Friday at the officers club for uh, for the officers, and I showed up and with my cross and with a big button that said designated driver. That did not go over well. <laughs> so, so uh, yeah, I was there, but he let, he kind of made his disapproval, oh, uh, made me aware of it. He also didn't like us flying in the F-16s. And so he was supposedly evaluating whether or not to continue the program. And I made the mistake of asking him about it one time. And that was a big mistake. So yes, I got crossways, but then, you know, we got, had an inspection and the Air Education and Training Command came and inspected the chapel program. And I was, I was in charge of the Protestant part of the program. And the inspectors, after their inspection, they, they gave us an outstanding rating and um, very much appreciated what I'd done in the leadership of that program. And so that was, that was kind of like, uh, okay, what's this going to mean? Well, it didn't mean a thing. It meant that when I PCS out of there, uh, I did not get the recognition that um, would have gone to normally to a, a chaplain that would leave the base. You say PCS, what does that mean? Oh, I'm sorry. Permanent change of station. When you okay. go to a new duty station, I was, I was reassigned to Lackland Air Force Base. Gotcha. In the same vein that you sort of had to seek out and, and help your, your fellow servicemen and women, Mike, uh, did you seek out the chaplains uh, whenever you were uh, on active duty? Yeah, I mean, um, having grown up in the military, uh, I dated at Clark Air Force Base uh, the senior chaplain's daughter in high school hmm. um, uh, and uh, Colonel um, uh, Rag, W-R-A-G-G. I don't know, Ben, if you knew Colonel Rag over there at that time. But uh, yeah, I, having grown up in the military, chaplains, uh, chaplain services, uh, I was Roman Catholic at the time, were wonderful. Uh, and then in the Air Force, seeking chaplains was uh, their counsel, was always a, a great, great gift to us, great, great, great gift to me. Um, about 20 Four, almost 25 years ago, I became a federal chaplain with the Veterans Administration here in Pittsburgh. Mm-hmm. And so much of what uh, Eric just talked about, um, you know, you, you as, a, as a chaplain, whether it be active duty or federal chaplain with the VA, you're always wanting to honor uh, the individual's faith. Uh, uh, and, and if you can't help them, you 
find somebody that can, whether it be another VA chaplain or somebody within the community. And I've had the real gift, of, uh, blessing of being able to help many of uh, veterans find uh, their peace with God in, as they understood understood the, uh, their, their faith. But uh, being a VA chaplain um, or mil active duty military chaplain is a great gift, great gift to us. You know, I want to. It makes me think. Take a step back and think about the history of chaplains within the armed forces, and it goes back, you know, to the beginning of the Marines, beginning of the Army. Further back, you go back into, you know, Dark Ages, things like that. <laughs> um, but what does it mean to you to have that history and be a part of that history within your service, and uh, and maybe speak a bit about uh, why it seems that religion and the armed forces are so intertwined when it doesn't, it, it, it's odd to me to combine those two things in my head. Well, you know, as uh, Eric pointed out, uh, you know, it's uh, freedom of religion uh, in the nation and the U.S. Uh, from its founding has always had uh, chaplains serve in the armed forces. The British have as well. Now, uh, there are other nations uh, that don't, but most Western uh, nations do have chaplaincy in, in one form or another. Recognition is, you know, we're body, mind, and spirit. And um, so your spiritual part of your life needs to be healthy for the rest of your life uh, to be healthy. Obviously, the military is more interested in what you do as far as your your particular uh, job performance may be, but to be there, you have to be spiritually well also. So I think that's been a recognition in the U.S. military all along. Mm -hmm. And what are they, how, how do you define uh, being spiritually well and ready for, you know, being able to <clears throat> accomplish goals within the military? Sure. Well, as a Christian, you know, it's a proper relationship with the Lord Jesus Christ. Mm -hmm. um, you, you know, you, you, you deal with um, people from a lot of other perspectives that don't necessarily uh, believe the same way you do, but you can uh, work together. And certainly the Protestant uh, programs uh, in the military are, are a good uh, example of that. And we also had Jewish rabbis and, and other uh, folks that would serve um, in the chaplaincy. Uh, you, you know, when I, I worked the most, I mean, I was involved overseas uh, in the chapel programs when I was at Clark Air Base in the Philippines and uh, Bitburg in Germany. But one of the things at, at Bitburg in Germany, I became uh, the deputy combat support group commander or deputy base commander. Uh, and at that time, chaplains came under the, the base commander. Now they've since moved to the wing staff and are, are considered a wing chaplain, which I think for the most part is, is wiser. But for the base aspect, uh, you know, with morale, welfare, recreation, uh, the status of people and their families uh, needing to be healthy uh, to support, you know, we wanted to make sure that things went well. So the base commander and I had lunch every week faithfully uh, with the chaplains uh, to see, you know, what's going on in the base, what can we do to support it. You know, we also made sure there were good programs in the youth center and the rec center and those kinds of things. Uh, the, one of the things highlights that one of the things I was responsible for was dependent misconduct. And, um, you know, a civilian who is a dependent gets into trouble and you're overseas. The military only has an administrative authority over that person or whatever the authority they have with the military sponsor. Um, as far as any criminal activity, then they come under the, the host nation. Uh, by the statuses of forces, but basically I would have to take care of it. And so we wanted uh, to do what we could to keep the youth population healthy uh, and doing the things that need to be do and limit uh, the things that would uh, cause serious issues uh, among the youth. And as a result in doing that, uh, we were able to significantly cut the dependent misconduct rate and it, it really was all based on going from the spiritual aspect of what's going on on the, on the base and making the whole place a healthy environment. Eric, did you find that a lot of people found their faith after enlisting? Well, I, I would say that my experience at Lackland Air Force Base, <laughs> uh, I saw how the, the trainees would come to chapel because it was a break from their uh, routine with TIs on them all, all the time during the week and the rest of the day. 
and they could relax and be able to uh, sing and and shout and pray and do things that they couldn't do otherwise. And so we would have uh, four chapel services that were Protestant chapel services that would have about a thousand trainees in each service. Hmm. I had a uh, a small liturgical service as well, and and we would have a hundred. But uh, it, it was very well attended, and a lot of the the young, uh, the young trainees would, for the first time in their lives, experience something of a spiritual nature. Most of them, we I would do a survey every time a new uh, class came in, and I'd say, how many of you uh, have have been in church within the last month? Very few hands went up. Mm-hmm. How many within the last year? A few more would go up. But by far, the most hadn't been in church in a long time, if ever. Uh, then I would ask them if they had any church affiliation, and then we would break them down, uh, send the Roman Catholics over with the Roman Catholic chapel. Roman Catholics had their own denominational program, and uh, as did Jews and Eastern Orthodox. So the Protestant was really the only homogenized, everybody thrown in together program that include uh, people that would be normally recognized as Protestant and groups that would not appreciate being recognized as Protestants, but they were thrown in that category because there's no place else to put them. And so we would do our, our uh, chapel orientation with the, uh, with the new trainees, and, and they looked forward to coming back on Sunday and being able to have, they were, they were uh, required to be given the opportunity for one hour of, uh, or two hours of religious programming, uh, worship and Sunday school. And so that was, for a lot of them, it was a step off into a, a realm that they'd never experienced before. And so it was a, it was a tremendous learning experience. And a lot, of, a lot of them came to faith during that time. Now, did they stick with it later? Well, we didn't tend to see them out in the, out in the rest of the Air Force very much, but, uh, part of our outreach to the dormitories and on the flight lines, some of them would trickle back. Mm-hmm. Uh, but it's, it's, a, uh, it's one of those things that unless you're under stress and facing a lot of uh, difficult situations, then you don't tend to think about it a whole lot. Mm-hmm. Now, when I was deployed for Desert Shield and Desert Storm, deployed to Korea, uh, deployed uh, to Kuwait during Desert Fox, they called it. Um, those situations, particularly Desert Storm, uh, were opportunities for people to examine their own spirituality and find out whether or not it was a source of strength for them or if it just wasn't there. And so we saw a lot of people come to faith in those kinds of difficult situations as they uh, turned to find a, a source of strength that was beyond themselves. It's a very interesting way to put it. And uh, I want to make a sort of a general question and go around the room, but I'll, I'll, I'll start with Ben, is finding that strength or you know finding that faith. Ben, what led you and what called you to be ordained? Well, I actually uh, you know, felt called to it uh, as a pretty young child with a, a very uh, profound uh, answering of prayer. Uh, of course, then I turned 18 years old, knew everything. And I, I seriously considered getting out of the Air Force at about the 14-year point and going to seminary and I got into the discernment program with the diocese and it became very clear that the best thing for me to do was to go ahead and complete an Air Force career mm-hmm. and then seek ordained ministry. And so I was actually uh, on terminal leave and still on active duty when I entered seminary uh, for, for a month, I was still on active duty. Uh, and, you know, that worked out well because you could live off your uh, military retirement and uh, the VA uh, pretty well paid my tuition, so that that worked out really well. Mike, I'll go to you next. What what led you? What called you to be ordained? Well, I was uh, in the Philippines, um, a junior in high school, when uh, I got involved with a high school Christian youth group called God Squad, and uh, it was an ecumenical uh, youth group, and we were down in the southern Philippines on the island, large island of Mindanao. And over over a Christmas period, I believe it was 1974, and it was during the, that time in the jungle that I just had this epiphany of, uh, you know, I, I really would love to serve the Lord the rest of my life somehow, 
and I, I didn't know how. I was Roman Catholic at the time. Um, so I obviously I thought about maybe I could become a Roman Catholic priest and, and I did pursue that. Uh, ended up leaving the Air Force uh, after almost four years uh, to pursue ordin pursue ordination. And so uh, I had left the Catholic Church, married in the Catholic Church, and my wife and I left the Catholic Church for several reasons, and ended up going to Denver Conservative Baptist Seminary back in 84. And so I had a, a great, great experience at Denver Conservative Baptist Seminary. Um, I did not graduate from there, later graduated from Trinity School for Ministry here in the Pittsburgh area. But uh, I brought with my uh, uh, love for the Catholic Church and the sacraments into the Episcopal Church, Anglican tradition, uh, and uh, was ordained in the Episcopal Church, later uh, left and joined the Anglican Church. But it was, it was really uh, my time in the military as a, as a dependent uh, and the inf great influence of the Air Force military chaplains and then uh, the Air Force chaplains, I sought their counsel to leave active duty to pursue holy orders. And Eric. Okay. My story, I experienced what I would say was a call to ordain ministry when I was 14. I argued with God for many years after that. And I tried to uh, bargain with God and say, okay, let me do this, but I don't want to do that. And even though I had uh, had been confirmed in my faith and uh, had trusted Jesus as my Savior and was trying to follow him as Lord, I often found that it was more, uh, I was more worried about pleasing my friends than I was pleasing God. Hmm. It wasn't until after I'd served active duty as an enlisted person in the Air Force and went back to college that we went on a retreat to St. Gregory's Abbey in Three Rivers, Michigan, which is an Episcopal Benedictine Abbey. And during that time, uh, the abbot led us in a number of talks. And one of them, he talked about totally committing your life to Christ and not holding anything back, then allowing the Holy Spirit to infill and empower you and engift you, then coming together to be the body of Christ, each person with their own gift. Well, I had time there to think and pray about my areas in my life that I was holding back. And I finally prayed a very simple prayer. Lord, whatever you want to do is all right with me. And from that time on, I began to experience the presence of God, the power of the Holy Spirit uh, in ways that I never experienced before. Mm -hmm. And so um, that meant I had to pursue uh, ordained ministry, and I did. And went to the same school that my two brothers here went to. Uh, but I went before them. I graduated in 81. I'm not sure when they graduated, but I, it was probably quite a few years before them. They're, they're, they're youngsters. <laughs> <laughs> Spring chickens yeah. all, all here. Yeah. Um, and so I was ordained in Florida, went and served a church in Michigan, and then went on active duty from there. Is there, jumping, jumping ahead a bit, uh, Mike, is there a difference and you've, you've done a lot of work, and I'd like for you to talk about it a bit, is working with homeless veterans. Um, but is there a big difference, and if I have the term wrong, please correct me, between preaching to civilians and preaching to veterans? No, when you, when you have an understanding of what the gospel is, um, uh, and you're committed to following Jesus as Lord and Savior, <clears throat> you always preach the truth of, of the gospel. Now it's how you do it sometimes, you know. Um, uh, I have a congregation in the Pittsburgh area called Shepherd's Heart, and um, we are specifically a parish to the homeless, uh, the street homeless, the poor. I do not have a regular congregation. The second floor of my church building is a transitional housing program for uh, uh, ma many combat veterans, uh, but they're specifically to homeless veterans. So my ministry is to homeless people in general who have suffered for traumas of a wide variety of reasons that have fallen through the cracks of society, whether they be military trauma, war trauma, or uh, young women who have been uh, in terrible relationships and have been sexually exploited trauma um, or job trauma. So I, it's, it's how you present the gospel. You never water down the gospel. Um, the, the way we can change this nation is the same way we can take change 
with God's grace and God's help, each of us individually, by drawing closer to our Lord. And that's, that's what you do. You preach truth sometimes, uh, depending on uh, uh, the nature of the congregation, you, you'll preach it one way. Uh, other times you'll preach it like the congregation I have. Um, uh, I preach tons of compassion uh, and the Lord's overwhelming love and forgiveness. I preach that all the time because the last thing I want to do is beat up my congregation because the world has already done that uh, uh, pretty successfully. And my job as a parish priest and as a federal chaplain is to try the be best I can to be the hands and arms and feet of our Lord Jesus Christ. And that's sort of the the what goes across all all ordained ministry ministers um, or reverends chaplains um, is is preaching the word. Um, and, I'm, and I'm starting to think of this a little differently in the sense that when I met my wife, she's a lawyer. I thought all law was the same. But it turns out no, there's different areas of law that you can sort of go into. And is that this is that the same in in uh, in chaplain in in being coming a minister? That perhaps is the dumbest question I will ask. <laughs> <laughs> well, as Mike said, you, you know, you adapt to, to, to whom you're ministering. The gospel okay. doesn't change. Uh, but just like, you know, the, the way you work with people, uh, you know, Paul says it well in his letters, to a Jew, I'm a Jew, to a Greek, I'm a Greek, uh, that you have to speak a language and in, in terms that people that you're visiting with can understand. So, yes, you know, the role of a chaplain can be quite different from that of a, of a, a parish priest uh, or somebody that's in a, in a ministry tied to a church uh, or one that's, uh, that's uh, an independent uh, ministry can make it very different. And we have a specialized ministry like Mike's, uh, what he's doing, particularly to homeless people, uh, is very tailored to, to what their, their needs are. And could I insert something here? Mm -hmm. Of course. The role of a chaplain is not a whole lot different from a parish priest. Mm -hmm. What I found is you deal with the same issues, the same things. When I retired from the Air Force, I uh, was hired by a large church here in San Antonio. And the rector's idea of chaplain was really a, a hospital chaplain. Uh, and so he assigned me working with uh, the elderly. So I went from working with 18 to 22 year olds to working with 80 plus year olds. What That's I found different. was that 80 plus year olds have the same questions as 22 year olds. I thought it was very so, different. <laughs> and so, and so I just continued to do what I do and, and uh, was able to, to connect with them. But the, the uh, chaplains have a unique access to people that we don't as civilian pastors. The chaplains as a unit chaplain is the one that the first sergeant will refer people to you who ha are having problems and whatever their issues are, uh, they uh, uh, they will see the chaplain as a resource for counseling and for encouragement. And so that's that's an in we have with with the people that you don't necessarily have uh, in a civilian parish. I, 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 I totally agree. Here. I uh, I find that my work ministry among veterans who are homeless going through difficult times um the questions that they ask the, the the for their ability to be able to trust me is because i'm a fellow veteran i'm an ordained minister but also because of the history of the chaplaincy corps in the military um and have all of us having gone through basic training we are uh, other than you sean we understand that the chaplain's door was a very important door to, to be able to have access to when we first enlisted into the Air Force. Um, I found that door very, very important. And so for the veterans that come into my program or that are still on the streets and I go into their camps, um, immediately there's a trust um, that was built because of guys like Eric and and uh, the chaplains that have had a great influence on me in the Air Force. So. Uh, the street homeless that are not military, um, it, it takes a little bit longer to build a level of trust. Some general questions that I have as a civilian uh, thinking about chaplains in the military, and this is maybe questions that our audience would think of in, in the same sense, is do chaplains also carry weapons? Oh, no, nope. do not. Absolutely not. 
Absolutely. The convention right. does not allow chaplains to carry weapons. Okay. But we do have an enlisted person who's assigned to us, a chaplain, chaplain assistant, who carries weapons, and they're responsible for protecting us. But chaplains cannot carry weapons. And for, for uh, 20 years, I didn't even handle weapons off base or in a civilian context, uh, on leave or anything. I, I respected that part of who I am as a chaplain and what I represent. And it's not to carry <laughs> weapons. We are not the war fighters. We're the ones who, who encourage and support and bless and counsel and, uh, and seek to, to do what we can to help the war fighters through their times of tra uh, transition and trial and trauma. And that brings up my next question is the war fighters who tend to be, I guess, more religious would have to go into battle, into combat, and they may have to take a life. And of course that, I don't know how that, that combat veteran or combat person would reconcile those two worlds in their head of like, I, I, this is what the gospel teaches. And this is what I'm ordered to do. I have to defend this base. I have to go out on patrol. I might have to take a life, you know, uh, that that seems to be the the toughest question i think that 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 can be asked it's a very important question mm -hmm. um my father a three-war combat pilot was a devout roman catholic as devout of anybody that i probably ever knew and one of my great heroes in my life um but his faith is what helped him on all those uh, combat missions in south korea world war ii south korea and vietnam uh, a very very proud man but uh, it wasn't till his deathbed dying from Agent Orange from liver cancer that I finally saw a peace come over my father after all those combat missions um, because of uh, what our nation, what the military asked of him to do. And he never, never really found peace. But that's one of the greatest gifts that God has given Ben and Eric and I uh, the, to be call, called to be ordained is to bring the love of our Lord Jesus and his forgiveness and to pronounce forgiveness to any and all that come before the cross of Jesus Christ. And I was, I had the privilege of being able to uh, pronounce forgiveness over my father on his deathbed. And I never saw the peace as he passed away uh, his entire life. I never saw that until that moment. Some religions are uh, require their people to be conscientious objectors. Mm -hmm. and. So when someone is a conscientious objector and they happen to be on active duty, they may have converted to that faith, but the chaplain is the one who's required to assess the sincerity of their belief and make a recommendation to the commander uh, on whether or not to allow him to serve in a non-combatant role or to be discharged. Mm -hmm. And so uh, the, the combatant status of someone uh, we, we spent a lot of time discussing and talking about uh, I guess the uh, the role of the military and the role of faith, and uh, that can a can a military person be a Christian even? And so, if you remember when uh, John the Baptist was baptizing, among them, those who came to him were military people, and he didn't tell them to quit the military. He told them, "Be honest about what you do. Take accept your pay and not try to extort money from others, and and uh, uh, be." Uh, be fair-minded in your treatment of all people. And so if, if it was important for military to leave their responsibility of defending our nation and of keeping, uh, keeping order, then uh, uh, it would have come out in the gospel somewhere. Uh, Cornelius was a centurion. Uh, Peter didn't tell him, you got to quit being in the military. He told him to, to trust his life to Jesus, and then he would be saved. Um, and he didn't quit the military, he continued on. Now, some people, when they, they are converted, they find they needed to, uh, to take a step back and pursue another course, and that's okay. Non-combatants can do that. Uh, conscientious objectors can pursue that outside the military, but the military is specifically designed for the defense of our nation and to, to uh, bring the force of arms to difficult situations. You know, the military is... Uh, uh, subject to civilian oversight, and our commander-in-chief is the president, right. and he's a civilian, and so we're at their mercy. If they say, go do something, go break things and kill people for whatever purpose, then the military <laughs> has to do that. 
-hmm. Now, if we're given an unlawful order, then we have a responsibility to say, no, I can't do that. And so there've been uh, times in our past when uh, military has been asked to do things that they would feel was uh, an unlawful order. And they would say, no, I can't do that. And some of them would pay the penalty of a court martial for that. But, but we're still required as military men and women to, uh, to have a clear understanding of, of morality and what is a lawful and unlawful order. As a uh, VA chaplain, I deal with uh, uh, the uh, post-traumatic stress issues, combat tra um, traumas, uh, moral trauma. Uh, moral trauma is a relatively new diagnosis within uh, the VA and the military. And so you have uh, traumas, PTS, where you could have a, a traumatic brain injury, you were involved in a, a drive-by explosion. Uh, moral injury has to do with um, uh, growing up in a household of faith, in a faith tradition, and uh, being asked by the government or the military to do something against, uh, such as one of the Ten Commandments, thou shalt not kill, and reconciling uh, uh, that trauma, moral injury to your faith is something that uh, the, the VA chaplaincy and military chaplaincy are starting to process and deal with um, a lot more these days. Um, I have the great blessing helping these homeless veterans who have suffered uh, both PTSD, TBI, traumatic brain, brain injury, and moral injury, um, and just letting them know how much God loves them and helping them walk through the healing journey. And so it's one of the great blessings that Eric and Ben and I have, being able to help our combat veterans, those that fall through the cracks like those I deal with, to be able to find the peace uh, and the forgiveness of God Almighty. Mike, could I ask you a question? <clears throat> yes. You, you, you said thou shalt not kill as one of the commandments. Do you find that making a distinction between thou shalt do no murder and thou shalt not kill helps these traumatic, uh, these trauma sufferers? Absolutely. Absolutely. When we're asked by our nation to fight in the combat, uh, the wars of yesterday and today, there's a very big difference between thou shalt commit murder. That's, that's my opinion. I think many of us in the ordained ministry who have been involved in the military understand the difference between uh, something that's a cautionable sin of uh, committing um, adulterated murder versus uh, being in the jungles of Vietnam and being attacked uh, and defending oneself, defending oneself. Mm -hmm. Yes, thank you, Eric. Ben, we seem to have you fully back now. <laughs> Hopefully it doesn't stop you after the, the sentence if you'd like to repeat your answer. Well, uh, you know, I just never had a difficult to reconcile in my faith uh, with doing whatever the uh, the mission I was called to do, uh, to do, that I never found that to be irreconcilable. Speaking to what Mike was talking about, did you ever find yourself in a point where you felt that that moral injury of what you believed and what you had to do? Sort of no, I, I, fortunately, I never, never encountered that. <laughs> How does being uh, ordained fill you up? I think it's a better way to ask the question. How does it fill you up? Fill your soul, fill up your, your desire to do good? Well, it, it, you know, but being ordained, you have specific roles that, that you can fulfill, mm -hmm. um, that you can do baptisms, that you can uh, ask God's blessing on a union of man and woman in, in marriage, um, that uh, as Mike was talking about, you know, you can tell people um, that they've been forgiven. Um, and so, you know, it's that whole healing aspect and to anoint uh, ill people uh, with oil, lay hands on and pray for their healing um, and for the Lord to heal them. Uh, you know, it's not what we do, it's what he does, but it's very fulfilling uh, to be able to enter into that role, to be a faithful vessel and for people to be healed physically and spiritually uh, and in their lives. And uh, Mike gave us such a powerful testimony of what it is to somebody that's never felt they were forgiven uh, to know that they're forgiven. I was, uh, I was a personnel officer in the reserves. I was also enlisted, mm -hmm. but as a personnel officer in the reserves, I was doing that while I went to seminary. And, and after I graduated and was ordained, I 
still did that for a while. Mm -hmm. uh, and it, it, I had to struggle with the question, do I want to leave being a personnel officer or do I want to become a chaplain and become a chaplain? And I saw all kinds of opportunities for ministry as a personnel officer. And I was worried that if I became a chaplain, I wouldn't have those same opportunities. Um, but I decided that part of what I needed to do was to bring together my, my call and my ordination into my relationship with the Air Force. And so I did pursue becoming a chaplain. It's a different commission. Uh, line officer commission is one thing, chaplain is another. I was a captain as a, as a personnel officer. When I became a chaplain, they busted me to first lieutenant. My goodness. That's because I didn't have enough constructive service credit to maintain. My That's just the way it is. It's a different commission. Mm -hmm. And so what I found as a chaplain is I became uh, a focal point for Christian unity and a focal point for, for uh, religious assistance. And that people were able to look to their chaplain for, for counseling, for support, for encouragement. And, and, I had different opportunities than I did as a personnel officer. And Mike? Yes. I mentioned earlier in the introductions, Colonel Ben Pallard, POW. Um, he taught us, uh, as, as Eric and Ben so fully understand, you don't leave a sailor, soldier, airman, marine, coast guard behind. And so when I began walking the streets in Pittsburgh in June of 1993, and I went under the bridges in Pittsburgh, and found these whole camps of Vietnam and Vietnam era veterans, Colonel Ben Pallard's voice just echoed in my mind that uh, these guys, many of these guys under the influence of drugs and alcohol were using the chemical to numb the pain of the traumas of war. And so they were still in many of them in the jungles of the Philippines and or whatever uh, combat zone they had been involved in. And so for me, as an ordained minister, a former um, dependent of a career officer, Air Force pilot, and then also a veteran myself, to be able to be the hands and feet of Jesus Christ under the bridges and going into these camps, um, it's one of the greatest fulfillment I've ever had. Uh, lived all over the world, was born in Germany, high school in the Philippines. But to be able to go under a bridge and help a veteran, a combat veteran traumatized by war, find peace in their life and to be able to uh, find hope again and be able to get out from our bridge and find a place to live on their own and be reconciled with loved ones. It's one of the, uh, reconcile with Jesus himself, it's, it's the greatest privilege that I could be asked of. I think you put it well there, to be asked of to do that. Um, Eric, maybe your best to speak to this next question is if 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 a person were looking to enlist but go into uh, go into it as a chaplain, what advice do you have for them? Become a chaplain in the military? Mm -hmm. um, well, they they need to have an ability to work with other denominational faiths. If their faith is so rigid that they can't do that, then the chaplaincy is not for them. Mm -hmm. uh, in order to become a chaplain, you have to have a bachelor's degree and a master's degree, whether the master's degree is in counseling or in, in divinity, whatever supports the chaplaincy ministry. There are some churches that don't require any kind of uh, degree at all, but in order to be a chaplain, you have to have at least a master's degree. So some of my friends who were from denominations that didn't require degrees would go to school and get a, a master's degree in counseling. And, and that served them well when they were in active duty. But yes, it requires degree background, requires endorsement by a particular denomination that's recognized by the Department of Defense. I think there's over 200 of them. And then um, it requires experience in, uh, as a civilian, as, a, as an ordained person. So those are the things that are required and beyond that, a recognition that you're working in a, in a very closed community and that that closed community is, uh, uh, is, is a very important one that you maintain the integrity of that community. Um, we had, a, uh, I guess, uh, an opportunity to, to see that in action when I was at, at uh, 
Luke Air Force Base is head of the program there. Uh, some of the folks thought that the chapel was to be a platform to evangelize the world. And I, I, I had to somehow take a look at that. And it's nice to, to have that opinion and that goal, but we were strategically placed as a military chapel within the closed community of the military to reach out to that community. And that needed to be our primary focus, not evangelizing the world. And once we were able to recognize that that was what we we're supposed to be about, the four different chapel, Protestant chapel programs that we had, uh, four different denominational or styles, uh, liturgical, Methobacterian, general Protestant, uh, uh, the uh, gospel service, the African-American service, and then the uh, uh, the contemporary service. All those services uh, came together and were able to focus their effort on reaching the base rather than uh, expending their, their effort and money in doing things that uh, really they weren't strategically placed to do. And that was helpful. Uh, ben or Mike, any, any advice for someone who'd be looking into being ordained? Well, you have to have, you, you know, uh, as you mentioned earlier, call, you know, and uh, of course, to be ordained in whatever denomination you're seeking ordination in uh, also has to concur uh, that you're in fact called and God has given you the, the gifts uh, to minister. So it's good that there is a, a discernment process uh, to ensure uh, that that's what, what you ought to be doing, that you're equipped and then uh, to be able to, to minister. I find having the sought the counsel of the, the base chaplain, um, not only as a dependent, but also later on a, a, as an act of duty, having the counsel of, of a military chaplain, their door open, meant the world to me and, and really gave me some clear direction once I left active duty. I guess one final question is, it, how is it different? This, you know, the, the, the advice here is great for someone who would want to become a chaplain or has a calling to do that. If, if they're not quite sure which branch to go into, is there a difference between being a chaplain and the Air Force, Army, Mar Marines? There is a difference. <laughs> yes. Yeah, there is. Uh, if you like camping out, the Army's for you. Uh, <laughs> or the Marines. <laughs> yeah. or the Marines. Camping out and hiking, absolutely. But uh, in, the, in the Marine Corps, uh, Sean, you might not know, they do not have Marine chaplains. They're Navy chaplains. Right. Uh, and okay. so, so if you like to uh, spend time on a ship in the middle of the ocean uh, or in the jungles and beach, uh, you know, beachfront property, storming the beaches, mm -hmm. then a Marine, being a Navy chaplain for the Marine Corps might be for you. So big yeah. difference. Navy big chaplains have a larger role, too. They're, yes. they're usually in charge of the library on the ship. Uh, morale and opportunities for uh, recreation. Uh, so they do a lot of other things that it, in the Air Force, the chaplain is really, it's a lot like a civilian church and you work out of the chapel and, and uh, have programs, and everything you would see in a civilian church, Sunday school, youth groups, um, uh, Bible studies, support groups. And, and in the, uh, in the, particularly in the Navy, you find that that's, uh, not quite what your focus is most of the time. Also, the, the Navy and the Army, you're assigned to a specific unit and you travel with your unit. In the Air Force, you don't. Uh, we're <laughs> wherever we're needed and, uh, and it's rarely with a unit that you've been working with uh, in your home base. Yeah, there, was, there are some symbiotic things. When I was at Bitburg, we had a Patriot missile to, uh, battalion there and so when they were deployed for Desert Storm, as well as the aircraft and crews that we, we had at Bitburg, you know, the Army chaplain went with the unit. Uh, then, uh, but the Air Force chaplains that were still on the base then were able to minister to all of the uh, spouses and dependent children and the things that needed to, uh, to happen at the base because they were still there uh, to take care of them. And the, so there was, also a symbiotic relationship with a lot of the army people would come down uh, to see the Air Force chaplain, um, you know, and it was also the army, they had to get permission of their first sergeant or commander to go talk to the chaplain where in the Air Force, um, you don't. Um, so it, it, it is treated differently in the branches. 
so interesting. I had not, I had no idea. Um, well, thank you all for coming on and joining me for this episode of the Scuttlebutt. I know I learned a lot uh, during this. There was a lot that I didn't know, so I'm glad that we got a chance to really dive into this and understand more of all of your stories. Um, and and uh, for anyone out there who is interested in uh, seeking to be ordained, uh, you can reach out to me, and I'm sure any of uh, our, our guests here, Mike, Eric, and Ben, would be uh, interested to hear from you and talk with you more if, if, uh, if you'd like to. Um, We'll be back next week with another episode of The Scuttlebutt. Gentlemen, uh, thank you all for spending the time with us today. Thank you. It was wonderful. Thank you.